Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing all over the world. Lord, in the midst of darkness, you are light. In the midst of deep darkness, you arise. And so, Lord, we're thankful that our certainty lies in you, in your nature, in your, in your caring fatherhood of us and not in our circumstances. And Lord, I thank you that you've actually set us in heavenly places far above all principalities and powers, so we're not under the circumstances, we're above them. And Lord, we bless this day. And, we, and Lord, we declare that this is the day that you made and that we will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen. Well, I can almost preach about something totally different. <laughs> but uh, the subject is being transformed, being transformed from the inside out. And I, um, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 32, I want to share a story with you that actually is a pretty familiar story. Bill told the story many years ago in Weaverville, really touched me, and it's become just a part of my own story. But um, we're talking about being transformed from the inside out. And how many know the kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you? And part of the challenge that Jesus had with the Pharisees is that they were trying to convert people from the outside in. And Jesus talked about the fact that you've got, you've got to take, you've got to start from the inside out. It's not, you can't clean the outside of the cup and, and, and call that transformed. And, and I, I want to just take this uh, story out of Genesis um, and the story of Jacob and just kind of uh, kick off this series with this, with this uh, very familiar story in, in our movement. Turn to uh, chapter 32 of Genesis. Did I tell you verse 22? Now he arose, speaking of Jacob at night, and took his, two, took his two wives and his maids and his 11 children and crossed, uh, and crossed the ford of, ja- of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for dawn, the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be, be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is a crazy, wild, one of those Old Testament stories. You know, I, I often wonder when people read the Bible and then you talk about an encounter that happened or things that happened at Bethel or things that you hear happen, and people are like, God would never do that. I'm like, have you actually read the Bible? Yeah. I heard uh, a man many years ago, we were in uh, Portland, Oregon uh, at a conference and the youth pastor spoke and he said this, he said, I never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. Speaking of Jacob, who walked with a limp. And I, I, uh, I used to repeat that phrase, although I had no idea what it meant. I just thought it sounded so cool. Never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. You don't walk with one, don't trust me. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant, actually. But this is an encounter that Jacob had. He's, he's, uh, he's, in, he's going through a very difficult time. He's just left his father-in-law's house where he's worked for many years and made him, his father-in-law made himself very wealthy through this whole series of miracles. 
He uh, ends up with two wives and two concubines. It's kind of funny. Uh, I just want to say something to you who have blended families and think God can't use you. By the way, it's not okay to have a blended family from the standpoint, don't, I don't want to release a spirit of divorce on anyone. I just want to le- release a spirit of redemption. I mean, God starts, uh, he, he, he plans a nation. He promises Abraham a nation. And then, uh, you know, if you know the story, uh, Jacob ends up uh, with two wives, uh, kind of not by choice. And then he ends up, the, his, his wife he, he really loves, uh, uh, Rachel can't have children and anyway the story goes on that he ends up with two wives and two mistresses and they have 12 they have 13 children 12 sons and and a daughter and uh, seven of those are through mistresses <laughs> super bad story but God makes an, a complete nation out of a dysfunctional family and I just want to say this uh, when we're talking about transformation God can transform anything you're in here, you're watching, and you're like, I've messed up my life. God could take a messed up life and make a nation out of it. Yeah, and it's such a, a power, it's such a weird but powerful story that no matter where you are in life, God can redeem it. And we say, we love, God loved Israel, and Israel started with a very dysfunctional family, and yet God used that as a foundation to build an entire nation on so you may be divorced, you may have been through hell and back, and you're like, I have so failed, and I just want to start out the, this day by saying, this is what this message is about. It's not about, like, it's not about like, people with great lives. It's, re- it's reminding us that no matter where you are in life, God can use you, God can transform you, and yesterday doesn't have anything to do with today if you submit today to God. So Jacob, his name means deceiver. Now, if your name's Jacob, you're, I love, awesome. Parents don't write me about this message. I named my son Jacob. I understand, I understand. But if you were old Hebrew and you named your son Jacob, it means deceiver. And Jacob, if you, if you follow Jacob through his life, Jacob has a problem with deception and lying. I mean, he took on the attributes of the old Hebrew name. He literally was a deceiver and a liar. And he ends up in this place where he's totally distraught. His, his brother doesn't like him. His father-in-law doesn't like him. His wives don't like each other and sometimes don't like him. His brother wants to kill him. And he ends up uh, it's taking his, as you probably heard here, he tells his wives, and he's very rich now. How many of you know he's rich and miserable? And I'd like to make a point, it's better to be rich and miserable than poor and miserable, because at least you can go shopping. That's not in the Bible. That's not even biblical, but I thought I'd... <laughs> he sends his wives and his, his servants and all of his possessions, and they go on to the next city, and, Jabbok, uh, and Jacob says to his, his family, listen, you guys go on, I'm going to catch up with you, and I'm going to go get my life together. And Jacob goes down to a city called Jabbok, and Jabbok means empty and alone. Anyone ever visited there? Anyone ever born there? And he prays to God for help, and God sends him an angel. Now, you know you're having a bad day when the angel that's sent to help you, he don't like you either. And Jacob wrestles with the angel all night. And finally, the angel says to him, my shift is over. Let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And Jacob hangs on to the angel. And the angel finally says to Jacob, what, what is your name? My name is liar. My name's deceiver. 
And the, and the angel says to him, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel. Israel means a prince with God. I love this part of the story. We didn't read it. But Jacob says, and what is your name? And the angel says, it's none of your dang business. I always wondered why the angel wouldn't tell him his name. You know, you know Gabriel visits, uh, you know, uh, uh, Zachariah and, you know, Michael visits Daniel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And what is your name? It's none of your business. I always wondered why the angel wouldn't tell him his name. And then I remembered that Paul said, do you not know you'll be judging angels in heaven? And I remembered, you know, <laughs> there's a guy walking with a limp and there's an angel. <laughs> yeah. He had, you know, PMS, you know. Post-ministry syndrome is what I meant. I don't know what you think I meant. Would you, if you wrestle with an angel all night and he broke your leg, would you let him go just because he called you by a nickname? I'd be getting me some stuff. Well, you would if you understood that sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will take away your future. Like, what's in a name? How many of you know that Eve, woman, never had a child till her name was changed to Eve. Saul to Paul, Cephas to Peter. And how many of you know when Adam named the animals, he didn't call them Spot, Fifi, and Trigger. He literally was giving them prophetic, he was literally declaring through their name their prophetic identity, their prophetic, their prophetic nature. Woman never had a child until her name was changed to Eve. Abram, to Abraham, the father of a nation, he never had a child until his name was changed to Abraham. What I'm getting at is that transformation begins with identity. Who are you in God? When you receive Jesus Christ, you are no longer a sinner. Paul said, we want, he said, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The point Paul is making is before we deserved it, Christ actually died for us. But how many of you know, when we receive Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become new. The word new there, there's two words in the Greek for new. One means like I got a new car. The other means prototype, never before created. When we received Jesus Christ, we became a prototype. We became a creature that had never before graced the planet. Literally, God didn't just forgive our sins, he changed our nature. Let me say that again. When we receive Jesus, God doesn't just forgive our sins, he actually changed our nature. It's no longer our nature to sin. I can't brag about the fact that I did it because I didn't do it. Let me say this, the first point of transformation is you can't do it. The second point is he can and he will. You might be watching right now. In fact, while I was praying during the worship time, I felt like there would be people watching that you haven't, you haven't actually received Jesus. And, and this is, we kind of customarily do this at the end of the service, but I just want to, you're watching online right now, and you're, 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 you're thinking about your life, and you're like, I'm kind of like Jacob. I've kind of messed up my life, and I was thinking God couldn't use me. God can't help me. You know, uh, I, in fact, I even knew what I was doing was wrong. Uh, how many of you understand Jesus didn't die for mistakers? He died for sinners. There's a big difference between a mistake and a sin. You can't sin by accident. Sin means, sin begins in the heart. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin says, 
I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. And here's the challenge. Some of you think, well, I can't be forgiven because I did it on purpose. That's what sin means. You did it on purpose. I did it on purpose. If you're watching right now, I want to tell you how transformation starts. It starts with this. You can, if, if you confess your sin, 1 John, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins. And here's the most powerful part of the whole verse, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you're watching right now, I just want you to kneel by your, wherever you're at, unless you're in your car, don't, don't kneel, maybe pull over. And just say, Jesus, I sinned. And you might, you might even, if there's sin in your mind, if it's adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, lying, cheating, whatever it is, maybe selfishness, arrogance, pride, hundreds of sins. If the Holy Spirit's con- convicting you of a particular sin or sins, just say, I repent of whatever it is. I repent of lying. I repent of manipulation. And just tell the Holy Spirit, I did these things, and I am aware that I am wrong. And then receive his forgiveness. Receive his forgiveness for you right now in Jesus' name. And, 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 let me, and, and then the next part of it is receive his lordship. And we don't use that word much in 21st century culture, but it basically means that God gets to be not just your friend, but your leader. You're actually a follower of Jesus. How many know confessing your sin and going a different way, that's, that's not being a believer. Being a believer is that you're actually daily asking Holy Spirit, where do I do now? You're reading your Bible, you're, you're fellowshipping with other believers, and I want to tell you that that will change your life forever from the inside out. Asking Jesus in your life initiates the promise that he does for you. You do this little part, little keys, we say open big doors. When you ask Jesus in your life, you're opening with your little key a big door. And honestly, he does most of it. He gives you grace, and grace means that he gives you the power to actually walk with Jesus. And he gives you mercy, which means you don't get what you deserve. I just want to encourage you right now that Jesus is actually knocking on your door, and you're you're like, it it can't be that simple. It is. It is. Walking with Jesus is simple in that all I have to do is follow him and listen to him every day. So I want to invite you to that transformation um, I want to talk a little bit about what happens with a name. I think one of the greatest lies in Christendom is that we are a sinner saved by grace. Now, let me be clear. We were a sinner that was saved by grace. So anytime we forget that, it's important for us to remember where we came from because that creates, that creates humility, gratitude, and thankfulness in our hearts. But to say, I am a sinner saved by grace is to undermine the blood of Christ that doesn't just forgive us, but transforms us. And so I want to talk a little bit about this whole idea that God, in Romans 5.8, says God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But we are no longer sinners. And Proverbs 23.7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You know, Um, John Maxwell said, you are not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think others think you are. Now, that's the phrase, and John said, that's not quite accurate, and he corrected that by saying, you're not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. 
Now, that's actually biblical because you become what you think God thinks of you. Here's the challenge. If what you think God thinks of you is not what God thinks of you, then you're not becoming what, you th- you're not becoming what God thinks of you. You're becoming what you think he thinks, which isn't what he thinks. And therefore, you're not becoming a manifestation of his imagination. You're becoming a manifestation of your imagination because what you think he thinks isn't what he thinks. So you're not being transformed. You're being conformed because you're being conformed to your thoughts instead of his. (laughs) So the goal, (laughs) here we go. Don't let me try that again. Actually got it right the first time. So the point is, is that what we think about ourselves matters because we don't become what God thinks unless we're thinking what God's thinking. It's important to think what God thinks. It's important to call ourselves what God calls us. And some people are living under an alias, a name that God did not call us. So it's important that we take on, like part of transformation is, who am I and who is, me, who is he in me? Like I feel like the two major issues in life, I think 95% of getting through trials is remembering who he is in me and remembering who I am in him. I remember years ago, I've told this story so many times, but I have, now I have 10 grandkids, and uh, uh, eight of them are teenagers, but when they were little, uh, we took several of them, five of them, to Marine World, and uh, two of them stayed in our hotel with us. Uh, Misha, who at the time was like five, and Elijah, who was like four. And we uh, got this really cheap hotel room because it's all we could afford. You know, in really cheap hotel rooms, like you go to Motel 6, and you have, you have this really small, cheap room with paper walls, but they give you this great big bed and a big TV. Like the TV, you can't even watch the whole TV because the room's so small. You kinda, you're, you're watching the screen, and you, you kind of have to look like this, the screen. So uh, Elijah and, and Misha, Misha being a year older, they're sitting at the, on, the, on the king-size bed, and they're watching this documentary on reptiles and they're watching the lizards and the crocodiles and the snakes and the alligators and and we're getting getting ready it's like 10 o'clock at night Kathy and I are in the bathroom getting ready and Misha who's like a little peanut she turns to Elijah when the documentary is over and she says let's wrestle and he's like all right so they jump up on the king-size bed which is the most fun thing to do when you're a kid and they face off with one another and Misha says, I'm the crocodile and you're the lizard. <laughs> as soon as I hear that, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. So I come out and I'm watching. And Elijah goes, Rah! and he grabs Misha and he throws her on the bed and he jumps on top of her. And she goes, you can't do that. Can't do that. You can't do that. I'm the crocodile and you're the lizard. So he gets off of her and he goes, what do lizards do? And she says, lizards go, stick out their tongue. And he goes, all right, I am dying. So he sticks out his tongue like is, is, is with all the passion he can muster. And she goes, rah! And she grabs him and she throws him on the bed and she jumps up on top of him, his little head sticking out here and he's going, for five minutes. He's on, every time... You know, he could throw her right off, but every time he moves, she goes, you can't do that. You're a lizard. About five minutes goes by, and pretty soon he's going. And I hear this little voice, Papa, yes, I don't want to be the lizard. I want to be the crocodile. 
I was thinking about that story. (laughs) How in the church, we become the lizard. And the devil becomes the mighty crocodile. And we say crocodile things like, well, brother, all we can do now is pray in tongues. (laughs) I want to propose... That you are not the lizard. You are the crocodile. That you are the head and not the tail. I'm trying to say that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are sons and daughters of God. When you received Jesus Christ, you went from sinner to saint. It's not even in your nature to sin. You're saying, you can't sin? No, you still have free will. I'm saying, it's not your nature to sin anymore. There's a river that runs through your soul that runs towards the throne. It's a metaphor. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't paddle, you end up at God's house. You have to actually make an effort to sin when you receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you, because it becomes your nature to do righteousness. That's a good word right there. I'm right about that. It's, <laughs> it's important that we say about ourselves, what God says. Let me give you a few scriptures for that. Second Peter 1, 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world by lust. How many know you've received divine, divine nature? When we received Jesus, we actually received his divine nature. People write all the time and thank me for this great revelation. Sometimes they do, actually. But they quote 1 John 1.8 and say, you're saying we're not sinners anymore, but the Bible says we're sinners. So let me read it to you. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, there they go. See? If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I remember I was at YWAM in, in, in Kona, actually, and I was teaching about new creation. And I was actually using these illustrations and I was, and I was saying that actually if you believe you're a sinner, you'll sin by faith. Because you actually obtained righteousness by faith. And of course, they're all believers there. I said, some of you struggle with sin because someone actually taught you bad teaching. Someone taught you that even though you're a saint, even though you received Jesus, you're still going to struggle with sin because of your lower nature. And I said, the Bible says, and, and I said, some of you have been taught there's a black dog and a white dog inside of you. The black dog being your old man and the white dog being the new man, and I was taught that whatever dog I give attention to, that's a dog that leads my life. And then I actually began to read the fact that when I received Jesus, the old man died. (laughs) The old man's dead. In fact, the book of Romans says 44 times, you're dead, 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 times four, plus four. Four dead people don't sin. You died with Christ. As a matter of fact, when you, the Bible commands us to be baptized in Jesus' name. And baptism is not just a symbolic act. How many know communion 
at least is partly a symbolic act in that Jesus said, do this, speaking of communion, in remembrance of me. Why do we take communion? Well, one of the reasons we take communion is to remember what side of the cross we live on so we can enact the cross in our life. But how many understand that baptism is not a symbolic act? Baptism is a prophetic act. Physical obedience brings spiritual release. You're like, what do you mean by that? There's a story in the Old Testament about a leper. He was actually a commander-in-chief of an enemy army of Israel, but he came to Elisha's house because he heard that Elisha had the power to heal leprosy. And he gets there, and this is a longer story, but the short story is, is that Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He just sends Gehazi, his servant, and says to, and said, tell, tell the commander to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. Well, the commander's mad. He thinks, like, there's going to be a big to-do, and the prophet's going to come out and do this, wave his hand and make this big declaration. And he's mad, and he leaves, and he's got a servant with him. And he's just like, well, that guy, he's, uh, he's a phony, he's a whatever. And the servant says to him, hey, boss, <laughs> why don't you just go dip seven times, and the worst you can happens is you get wet. He goes dip seven times in the Jordan River. And he comes up the seventh time, and he's completely clean. How many you know there's no magic in the water? The magic is in the obedience. Physical obedience brought spiritual release. His leprosy was healed because he did what God asked him to do. When we get baptized, baptism is actually a prophetic act. There's two parts of it. The first part is that we put you under the water. And Romans 6 says that if we are buried with Christ in the, in the nature of his baptism... So we, we put you under, and what is that? What is it, what's, what's happening when we put you under? The prophetic act. You are buried with Christ. Your old man is dead. The second part is just as important. And when we come up out of the water, the second part is if we, if we are buried with him in the, in the essence of his baptism, surely we shall be raised with him in the essence of his resurrection. That sin no longer is my master because I have died to sin, and I'm alive to Christ. Transformation is not just about repeating prayers. It's about following Jesus in the baptism, getting baptized like the leper. You go in with leprosy, and you come out clean. You come in, you're carrying your cross. How many of you know you can't be a believer unless you carry, follow, take your cross up and follow Jesus? But how many of you know Jesus was going somewhere? You enter the baptismal tank with a cross, but you exit with a crown. Because as he is, speak, 1 John 4 says, but as he is, so are we in this world. Not as he was. Come, you know, he came as the Savior, but he exited. He came as a sheep, and he exited as a lion. He came as the Savior, and he became the king. We're in the same process where we are actually sons and daughters of God, seated in heavenly places with Christ with a new nature. Let me finish this John passage. So we read, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's the very next verse. And remember, this was a letter written to the church. So there was no chapter breaks. The very next thought is, my little children, John writes, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. I just said, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we can't be 
forgiven, we can't be cleansed because how many know cleansing and forgiveness begin with confession? Look at the next part of the verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, <laughs> if anyone sins, not when, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, we have an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How many understand that before we know Jesus, we don't need an attorney, we need a savior. Once we receive Jesus and he changed our nature, if we continue to sin, we don't just need a savior, we already have a savior, we need an attorney. Why do I need an attorney? Because I have no reason to sin. The power of sin is broken in my life by the power of the cross. I want to point out a really powerful point here. Let me just finish with 1 John 3. John goes on to write, and here's the third chapter of John. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Why did he appear to take away sins? And in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. What's the context? Sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does he who does not love his brother. That's the, that's the rest of 1 John. So when you read 1 John 1 and you're like, if you, if you say you have no sin, then, then you're making God a liar. But when we confess our sin, John goes on to say, this is how powerful the letter is. He's saying, if you say that you're not a sinner, you can't receive the power to change. But once you receive the power to change, you cannot remain the same and say I'm following God. The challenge of our day is we have normalized sin. Okay, here we go. We have normalized sin. And listen, people say, well, when you say that person, that that sin, what they're doing is like you're rejecting them and, you're, and these people need mercy. Absolutely, everybody needs mercy. Everyone on this, on, watching us here needs mercy. But how many know mercy means you didn't get what you deserve? Let me say that again. Mercy means you didn't get what you deserve. So you have to actually acknowledge that you deserve judgment in order to apply mercy. <laughs> or, this, is, this is John's point. John's saying, if we say we have no sin, then we take away the power of the cross, which is actually for sinners. So when I say, when I say things like homosexuality is not, it's not a sin, we're like, well, people who are homosexuals need mercy. Everybody needs mercy. All of us have sinned. The Bible was really clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the challenge with that? When we make sin an identity instead of an action, we take away the power of the cross to change someone because the power of the cross is in confession of sin. If, th think of it like this. If the speed limit's 40 and I'm going 80 and the police officer pulls me over and he doesn't give me a ticket, that's mercy. 
That's mercy. I didn't get what I deserve. If a police officer pulls me over for going 80 in a 40, and he gives me $1,000 for speeding, that's grace. I got what I didn't deserve. The only way I get mercy, God forgives me for my sin, and grace, God gives me the grace, the money, if you will, to get me out of prison, to change me, is to confess that I've done wrong. When I take away confession, I take away the power of the cross because the power of the cross is in confession. It's not being kind to people when you, don't, when they, when you tell them that what they're doing is wrong because the truth is, is that it's in my confession of wrong that I get the mercy to not be punished for it and the grace to come out of it. People will say, well, that's condemnation. No, they will, often, they will often talk about how Jesus met the woman and caught in adultery and said, does no one condemn you? They were going to stone her, if you know the story. Does no one condemn you? She said, no, Lord, no one condemns me. And then he said to her, go your way and listen to the rest of the verse and sin no more. Yeah. Jesus didn't tell her, Jesus didn't, let me, let me say it a different way. Telling her to sin no more wasn't condemnation. He said, in essence, listen, you just got caught in, uh, in, the, in the midst of adultery. I don't condemn you. But I do say this, and when he said, go your way and sin no more, how I many you know when God speaks, he actually gives you the power to not do it again? When he said, go your way and sin no more, how I many you know that was not, he said, neither do I condemn you, go your way and sin no more. How I many you know he just said, you were sinning? And he just said, don't ever do it again. How can I never do it again? Because when Jesus says, don't ever do it again, how many know that he releases power? When God said, let there be light, he released the grace. Grace is the, not just undeserved favor. Grace is the operational power of God that gives me the power to be transformed from the inside out. When he said, don't ever do it again, don't ever sin again, how many know he didn't just give her, he didn't give her a new rule, he gave her power to change. You might be watching this and you're like, well, I thought I was following Jesus, but I still struggle with sin. Well, let's go back to the first point. If you were taught that you're still supposed to sin as a Christian, you were actually taught out of the faith to believe for grace to change. And I don't want to say someone did it evilly, but that's a false teaching. The truth is what sets you free. And the truth is, is that when you receive Jesus, there is grace to not sin anymore. I started to tell you that a young man, I was teaching this at YWAM, and a young man stood up. There was a thousand students, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And he stood up and he said to me, can you go without a, an hour without sinning? I said, yes. He said, how about a day? I said, yes. He said, how about a week? I said, yes. And he read me first John said, you're saying you're not a sinner. And he sits down angry. So I read the, first, the rest of 1 John to him. I read three chapters to him. And I said, I'm not saying I can do it because I'm so good. I'm saying I can do it because he's so good. He gave me the power to change. Afterwards, when the, when the session was over, he came and apologized and said, yeah, I was wrong. I'm like, yes, you were. And at this point, I was right. <laughs> at 
feels good to be right once in a while. No, he really did come up and said, wow, I, no one ever taught me that, and I'm so sorry I interrupted the message. I'm like, no, it was, it was totally fine. It was totally appropriate. There's this thing about sin. Um, sometimes we think that temptation is sin. So we have this idea that, um, that I, you know, I received Jesus, and you're saying I'm no longer a sinner, but I actually have these temptations. Like, like I have temptations to lie, or I have temptations towards sexual issues. Like I have this just draw towards doing something wrong, and I'm a believer that's not supposed to happen. How many know that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was tempted in every way except without sin? So I'd propose that temptation is not sin. I am not the temptations I resist. Here we go. I am the virtues I embrace. As a matter of fact, I'd like to propose that being noble means that I overcome temptation through the cross. I remember um, years ago, my mother um, was, uh, she had lung cancer. And she was in the hospital for three, two or three months. And finally they released her and we drove up to take her home. And the doctor said, um, she's not going home, she's going for physical therapy. And I'm like, I mean, I know what physical therapy is, but I'm like, how do you have physical therapy on a lung removal? So I said to the doctor, I'm so sorry, like, what kind of physical therapy does my mom need with a lung remove? He said, oh, she has to learn how to walk again. <laughs> so I've never been through this before, so I was like, Completely ignorant. I said, what does removing a lung have to do with my mom learning to walk again? Oh, he laughed. He said, no, no. Your mother's been in bed for three months, so her, her legs have atrophied. And therefore, she's going to have to go to physical therapy to get her strength back and her agility back. And immediately, I had this thought, what you don't use, you lose. And then I started realizing that Temptation is the weight room of the world of character. Think about it. My mother didn't walk, and therefore she lost the strength in her muscles to walk. It's gravity that she resisted. She didn't have to work out weight. You don't have to work out with weights to not atrophy. Just your daily pressure against gravity. It's part of what astronauts face when they're in, when they're in a gravitless uh, state because there's no resistance. It is, it's, it's, it is walking daily, it's getting out of bed, it's standing up, it's, it's gravity is what's keeping me strong. Me resisting gravity. How many know that when I, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews, it's uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4. And says, Luke says, he went, into this, he went into the wilderness led by the Spirit, and he exited in the power of the Spirit. What does it mean to be noble? It doesn't mean I don't have temptations. It means I resist them. So, some people think, well, Bill's just so, Bill Johnson is just, he's just so noble because he doesn't have temptation. 
No, no, no. There's no temptations common to all people. It's not that he isn't tempted. It's what he does with the temptation. When I said I do to my wife, when we got married 45 years ago, when I said yes to Kathy, and I made a covenant with her, that covenant means that I will have, that I became a one woman man. When other women come along and, and they're beautiful and, my, and my, my, my soul says, wow, she's beautiful, I say yes, and we chose one woman. I didn't choose her once, I chose her hundreds of times. Every time I choose her, it makes our relationship stronger. I am building the muscles of our relationship. How can I say no to that? Because I have a big yes over here. Are you with me? I am building character through resisting sin. I'm, saying, I'm not saying sin is good for me. I'm saying God uses it as good because noble character doesn't mean I'm not tempted. It means that I don't receive it as an identity. Here's the challenge. What if I change my temptation to my identity? What if I say, because I'm drawn to it, therefore I am? Let me ask you where that ends. I'm saying, if you say, well, I just have this thing about stealing. I walk into a store and I, I just have this overwhelming temptation to steal something. Therefore, I must have been born to be a thief. No, no, no. How many of you know when you become, when you change your temptation to your identity, how many understand now I'm going to always do my be? If I think I'm a sinner, I will sin by faith. If I say this is my sin, when I, no, if I say my sin, I don't say my sin, I say that's not a sin. It's who I am. Well, what do you say to the pedophile if he's only attracted to children? You say, well, I must, be, must have been born for that. No, how many understand that sin is common to everyone? I am not the sins I resist. I am the virtues I embrace. Hmm. What do I do with these temptations? What do I do if I, I'm plagued with them? Well, Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're talking about being transformed today. So it's like, okay, great, Chris, I have these temptations, and you said resist them. I'm trying to do that, but they, they just keep coming. How, how do I change? Well, how many know you can't change your life, but if you change your thoughts, God will change your life. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to talk just about that. I just have five minutes, and I want to finish with this thought. How do I renew my mind? I'd like to begin by sharing with you this verse out of Joshua, where renewing your mind begins with meditation. Now, sometimes we think of meditation like we're sitting in the corner, like humming to ourselves, and what are you doing? I'm emptying my thoughts. I'd like to show you that biblical meditation is not empty in your mind. It's actually feeling your mind, feeling your mind, and filling your mind with the thoughts of God. In uh, Joshua chapter uh, 1, 
God is telling Joshua in one of his toughest seasons how to be strong and courageous and how to be successful. And he says this, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous and be careful to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Listen to this. This book of the law, this is the Bible, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you have success. Here in this verse, formally, if we would have read the whole chapter, God says, I'm going to make you successful. I'm going to be with you. But in the final exhortation to him, he says, you are going to make yourself successful. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to read the Bible. Then you're going to speak the Bible over your life. And then you're going to meditate on the Bible. It's really interesting. The word meditate here, it actually is the word growls. In fact, let me read you uh, one passage with that word in it. Isaiah 31.4, For thus says the Lord to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. The word meditate is actually the identical, it's not the root word, it's the identical word growls. In other words, when God is talking about meditating, he's not talking about humming to yourself, he's actually talking about taking the word of God. Let's say you're struggling with, uh, with uh, some kind of sexual sin. And you say, what does God say about me? Well, God says, I'm a holy person. God says he sent his Holy Spirit. God says, I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. And I take this word, and like a bulldozer, I plow new neural pathways through my mind. And I begin to say, that is not who I am. This is who I am. And my father said, you're stupid all your life. You're stupid. You're stupid. You're stupid. But God said, I have the mind of Christ. Instead of going to stupid, if something goes wrong, and I go, there I am. I'm stupid. Just like my father said. And I start building these freeways to, to bad thinking. How many of you know neural pathways are pathways in our minds that happen through repeated thinking. As I think the same thought over and over, I build wider and wider highways, and it's easier and easier to think whatever I thought. You get the ecosystem? I think it, it becomes wider, it becomes wider. It's like cutting a, it's like cutting a trail through a jungle. Every time I walk through that jungle, I cut a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and it becomes easier to think that way than this way. So what do I have to do? When, to be transformed, I have to think what God's, th what God's thinking. I have to say what God's saying. I have to take the word that God says, and, and, I, and I, have a, I have this pathway to, maybe you have a pathway to, something's about to go wrong. It's the spirit of foreboding. When you're having a good day, you're like, a bad day's coming. But what does God say? All things work together for good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. And I think, I'm a, I'm a person called to God's purposes. I don't care if it's a virus. I don't care if it's a pandemic. I don't care if it's a, 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 a financial turndown. Uh, I don't care what it is. God says that all things, and this is the thing, work together for good for those who love God. That would be me, and called according to his purpose. And I began to build like a bulldozer, I began to bulldoze new neural pathways through <laughs> my brain. And I, and I began to say, I am a believer. I am called for the purposes of God. Everything works out for good in my life. I'm like Joseph. What you meant for evil, actually God meant for good. And I began to say in my heart, in my mind, I got a freeway to something's going to go wrong. And I'm building a new highway, a highway 
to the way God thinks. When I keep doing that, pretty soon I haven't walked on that trail. I haven't taken that freeway. It begins to grow over with vegetation. And now when I have a bad day and I go, oh man, things just go bad. It's hard to think like that because I've built a highway to God's thinking. I want to pray for you right now. Why doesn't everyone stand? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, think about the weight room we're in. I mean, we're, we're going to be like freaking Hercules. I mean, what the enemy meant for evil, he has no idea what he just created. He created a structure. He created a weight room where every day we get up and we are getting stronger and stronger. You remember in the book of Exodus, it says, speaking of God's people, and the more they oppressed him, the more they multiplied. You are building muscles in the spirit. You're like a bodybuilder in the spirit. You get up every morning and you say, no to fear. Turn off the media. Listen, I'm a guy that likes to read the newspaper. I don't have a newspaper anymore. We just read it on our phones. But my grandpa, my father read it. My grandfather read it. My great-grandfather read it. I don't know if my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather could read. <laughs> but you just have to like, you just have to turn that off right now. Because the enemy is using that stuff to build a freeway to panic and fear and hopelessness. And I'm telling you, by the word of the Lord, nothing that matters to you will be harmed. So put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you right now. Lord, I thank you for grace. I thank you for transformation. I even thank you that, I, that we got to be alive in this time. We get to tell our great-grandkids, we were alive then, and God came through, and he arose in our darkness, and he, nations came to our light, and we get to talk about the greatest revival in history happened in the middle of when everyone said, it's going bad, and like we are shining like lights in the midst of darkness. We're a happy people knowing that God is our source. Lord, I bless the people of God right now. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.